Welcome to the New Books Network. This is another presentation for the New Book Network, the Sex, Sexualities and Sex Work Special Series. And today I'm talking to Maria Sanfilippo, who's about to introduce herself and tell us about her book. So Maria, can you tell us um, who you are and what your book's called and why this book and why now? Sure. This is Maria Sanfilippo. I'm Maria Sanfilippo. I am an associate professor of visual and media arts at Emerson College in Boston. And I'm the author now of uh, a recently released book called Provocateurs and Provocations, Screening Sex in 21st Century Media. And if you could see the title, you would see that Provocateurs is spelled a little differently than usual. It's A-U-T-E-U-R-S playing on the idea of the film tour. And the book is, I think, why now uh, is very much focused on the now. It's about 21st century media. So I'm looking back at the last 20, now one years, 20 years, I guess, of how sex has continued, but is all the more important a way of selling media. You know, we think about sex sells as this timeless axiom, but I've found that it's ever more true given that we are now in this moment of what's been called peak television, but also just across the mediascape, such an oversaturated amount of content that is competing for our eyeballs and our attention. And that so-called attention economy really does um, uh, enable uh, people to get lost amid the clutter, but also to you know stand out via these various means of finding ways to provoke, uh, to be provocative. And so I have singled out some of the texts and the practitioners, the so-called provocateurs, that I think do that in really interesting ways, not just to stand out, not just to commodify themselves or their work, not just to create sensational buzz, but that you know go further than that and actually ask us or push us to think or rethink how sex works, how sexuality works, and really pushes us into having some difficult conversations, but I think some really productive conversations around their work and around just our own, you know, thinking about sex and screening sex. Cool. So why now? Why now? Well, (laughs) I um, do believe that it is ever more the case that media creators have to fight to be seen and heard because the both upside but downside of the so-called digital revolution is that the democratizing of access and affordability of making media has led to this just wellspring of new content in new places uh, by new people, right? So we have you know, all of these new distribution channels, all of these new modes of accessing media, um, and all of these wonderfully newly diverse uh, accounts and you know experiences being uh, made uh, voluble through the amplification that social media and online streaming media have allowed. However, because there is now this you know super saturation of content, it becomes ever more difficult to rise above the clutter, right to you know stand out amid the amid the um, the uh, glut of content. And so it's, I think, all the more important for, you know, scholars, critics, you know, people who 
write about uh, media content to try to single out those voices that I think really deserve to be heard. And that's, I hope, what I have uh, done with this book. I, you know, have really uh, found myself um, honing, honing in on uh, certain practitioners, namely women and women of color, practitioners who I think are doing the most interesting work around screening sex and sexuality. And so I think uh, I was particularly interested in bringing their work to light. Um, namely, I talk about you know, the filmmakers, Lisa Cholodenko and Katerine Brayat, and the media creators, uh, Desiree Akhavan um, and Lena Dunham, uh, who, you know, the latter is obviously not under discussed, um, but I hope that I've brought something, uh, I think new and valuable uh, into the conversation regarding her work. And the other three practitioners are people who, you know, might be well known in film circles, um, but aren't uh, as I think well uh, studied uh, as their work I think is deserving uh, of to be. And so those are my four provocateurs. And I think, you know, the fact that they're all women is not incidental. It's not uh, coincidental. It's um, something that I was very much interested in doing in promoting the work of women because, you know, again, that provocateur conceptualization that I've coined is uh, very much, I think, at my, at my own kind of provocative play on the way in which the auteur in film studies and in just film circles has almost always been a moniker assigned to men, right? Used to valorize the male so-called, you know, auteur genius uh, creator. And I think it's high time that we um, award the same valorization to women creators. Not a minute too soon. Okay, so the introduction, which I really enjoyed, um, it discusses the film Blue is the Warmest Colour. So tell us about the impact that this film has made on you, because obviously you mentioned this film fairly often throughout the book. It's obviously been really impactful. So can you give us a sort of like, can you can you tell us about that, and, you know, the wider impact of this film? Absolutely. I mean, I think when I was just beginning to conceive of this project and was beginning to have to talk about it with that so-called elevator pitch that people have to do in academe, uh, you know, the one film that came up over and over again when I said I was writing a book about sexual provocation in contemporary screen media was, oh, you mean like blue is the warmest color, right? And so, of course, it had already occurred to me that that was going to be an important film for me to think about, but it really kept coming up to such a degree that I decided that I was going to just have to make it the topic I hit head on in the prologue to the book. Um, and as the title of that prologue, Tangled Up in Blue, suggests, you know, it's something that I'm still working through myself. Um, it's a difficult film, and it's, I think, a really representative film of the kinds of troubling texts that I look at throughout the book, ones that I wanted to revisit and reassess because I just couldn't shake them. You know, I, I really did uh, find that my personal attachments to the works uh, were tangled up with my political detachments, right, from some of what those works did. Um, and so I was trying to get at why that was and what I was supposed to do about it, right? So with Blue is the Warmest Color, it's a great example of a film that, you know, when I first saw it and when I continue to see it, I find myself really profoundly moved by it. I find myself, um, you know, very much seeing myself in it. Um, 
And so I have that kind of personal attachment to an artwork that's always exciting. I have great personal admiration for the uh, the filmmaker's accomplishment. Um, and, and by filmmakers, I mean plural, because as was awarded them at uh, the Cannes Film Festival, where it was um, given uh, the top honor, the two stars of that film were also considered the filmmakers, right? The authors of that film, and I think deservedly so, especially because it then came to light as they reported, you know, what had gone on on the set. And this was both you know, what was on camera and also what was happening behind the scenes in terms of the production uh, crew uh, and the labor practices therein. Um, but, you know, there were some abuses on set um, by all, you know, uh, reported accounts. And the film has fallen into dishonor to some degree and its filmmaker, its primary filmmaker, I guess I should say, uh, has very much fallen into disfavor uh, or dishonor. Um, and so that, of course, tarnishes its history uh, and will forever color our viewings of it. But uh, it also lives on in ways that I think um, have great benefit. You know, it's a film that came out um, around the time that France, like the US um, and other countries, were debating marriage equality legislation. And I think it had a significant impact there. Um, I have seen it having great impact for my students who report how they discovered it, you know, ironically enough, via uh, Netflix's algorithm of what they might like to watch, because they were queer or questioning youth who were looking for something that would be, you know, reassuring to them about their own sexuality. Um, so they came to it oftentimes not knowing about that, that rather, you know, uh, tawdry history that it has endured now and um, you know, they, once we talk about that in class, which, you know, we do whenever I would, you know, assign the film or even bring it up as a topic of discussion, they have, I think, a similar feeling as I do, that it's, you know, a tough film to reconcile because of what we know about it, of what we know about the filmmaker, but also of, you know, how we find it to be a really important study of first love, especially queer first love between women of different class backgrounds. Um, and it just brings up a lot of questions that I think I go on to talk about in the book. So it's a really great entry point into those questions, like, you know, the question of ethical practices on movie sets, right? You know, I mean, I think probably more than any other film, it has been responsible for um, enabling uh, the widespread practice of intimacy coordinators on the sets of productions. Um, I think it really initiated alongside some other important films and figures, uh, the question of how do we separate the art from the artist if we even were to want to, or you know, were it to be possible to do. Um, and you know, questions of cultural appropriation. I mean, let's not forget this is a film that is based on a graphic novel by a queer uh, woman artist and was, you know, uh, appropriated um, by, um, a man of color, but a man. And that question of the male gaze uh, is one that, you know, this film profoundly uh, engages with. So I think in all of these ways, it's really just a very apt film to begin my discussions of all things sexual provocation related. Which kind of brings me on to my next point. So in your introduction, you say that pro provocation in films has for far too long been used to mobilize against sexual freedom. But that this book aims to um, bring provocation back to, uh, back to um, to its potential roots. Can you can you unpack that for us? What did you say at that last? I'm not remembering my own <laughs> words. <laughs> uh, the quotation. 
so 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 but the, the, this book aims to bring provocation back to its uh, radical and political roots. Radical political roots, of course, of course, yes. Well, I mean, I think it's really interesting that, um, you know, for so long in Hollywood, there was this so-called production code, right? The production code administration ruled over Hollywood with this iron fist for, you know, three plus decades um, and censored out all representations of sex, you know, beyond the coded or the euphemistic. And, of course, you know, uh, censored out anything considered non-normative. And so when that system broke down in the late 60s, there was this wellspring of uh, sexually explicit uh, content, um, not only, you know, being made in the US, but also flooding in across the borders of the US and circulating worldwide uh, from other countries. Um, and it led to, uh, you know, a renaissance of filmmaking, you know, there were other uh, important reasons why that was such an important next decade for filmmaking. But I think one of the reasons was that suddenly we didn't have to pretend that, you know, sex wasn't happening. Um, suddenly films were for adults and uh, they looked like it. And it, I think, led to a lot of amazing work, um, a lot of cinephilia. Um, and I think, you know, we have since seen that um, evolve into, you know, what's been called the golden age of television, wherein there's, you know, really exciting work being done in television. Again, it doesn't hinge entirely on sexual provocation or even just, you know, sexual representation. Um, but I do think that that's a large part of it. I mean, it's absolutely the way that HBO, which is a uh, an entity that I uh, spend a lot of time dealing with in the book, because, you know, as it's been called, it's not TV, it's HBO, right? It's different from TV. Um, but as has also been joked, it's not porn, it's HBO. I mean, there's this kind of conflation between HBO and pornography that I think is really interesting. Um, that was back in the 70s, I think, um, a boundary increasingly being uh, blurred as well. Um, the lines between pornography and non-pornography are fabricated, right? They're lines that we have drawn uh, for various reasons, right? Moralistic reasons, industrial reasons, you know, so forth. And I'm really interested at probing the boundary between those two and seeing where it breaks down and why. And so, you know, going back to your question and my quotation, I think what is really a shame about contemporary film culture is that, you know, really ever since the 70s and uh, Star Wars and the, the what's been called the Spielberg Lucas syndrome, um, despite the fact that it's no longer mandated that we censor content, we do. We find, you know, most of the films showing at a theater near us to be films that are aimed at a child audience, a family-friendly audience, right? And how I really oftentimes interpret that, even though, you know, I'm sure <laughs> this might be a provocative comment in and of itself, it's for the adult, adult child audience, right? Because it doesn't really take on adult themes and adult content. Uh, so much of what's now popular and, and commercially viable in the film marketplace. Um, and so I am excited to write about the films that do still get made that are for adults, right? You know, uh, films for adults and films that, or other texts, right? Texts on television, texts on the web that are interested in looking and thinking about sex 
from an adult point of view that is non-prescriptive, that is non-censored, uh, that attempts to be as authentic as possible, as naturalistic as possible, and that really you know, pushes us past these boundaries that we've created around sex. Because I think that that going to the radical potential, right? That's really what's dangerous. When we start to circumscribe sexual expression, um, when we begin to you know, censor or efface uh, the realities of sex, um, that's what I want to push against. And so by highlighting works that I think are doing that, uh, I hope I can have some measure of radical potential realized in my work and by highlighting the work of creators that are doing that. Yeah, which kind of brings me on to my next point and something that I'd like you to explore for us. So your book discusses how, how screening sex has the potential to disrupt the way that society views how sex fits into human lives. Can you give us an example of how that, that's, that's, gone, that's happened? And maybe sort of explore that a bit. Uh, in one of the films that I'm looking at or one of the texts I'm looking at. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, let's see, there's so many options I could choose from. I don't, I'm going to have to choose one person to single out here. Um, you know, I think, well, maybe I'll try to speak to it more holistically. I think one thing that you don't often see in Hollywoodized uh, representations of sex is all of the awkwardness, um, all of the ridiculousness, right, of sex. And um, that, I think, is a problem, right? It sets up, you know, especially youthful audiences uh, for a very rude awakening. Um, that can have really profound repercussions, right? And, you know, you can take that to a more serious degree of impact. And I'll do that in a moment um, with another example. But I would say on a lighter note, right, some of the filmmakers that I look at, like, for example, um, the work of Desiree Akhavan uh, in her film, Appropriate Behavior, in her series, The Bisexual, you know, she, I think, quite charmingly, um, but importantly, looks at all of the awkwardness that can, uh, you know, emerge from attempting to have an adventurous sex life, um, attempting to kind of, you know, lean in to one's uh, anxieties and discomforts around sex. And, you know, she's not afraid to put it out there. And she does it in a way that uh, isn't distanced, but rather incredibly immediate and uh, self-involving in that she is acting herself in the work that she makes, um, most of it, and, and the work that I'm referencing. Um, so in looking at her actual participation in the sex scenes that she films, um, you know, I find that she is really daring uh, to say the things that we don't say out loud, but are thinking, to show the stuff that, you know, goes on during sex, but that gets edited out or not even written on the page in the more Hollywoodized versions. Um, whether it's, you know, a threesome gone incredibly bad because the guy gets insecure and the girls are more into each other than they are to him, or, you know, what happens when a woman queefs <laughs> during sex and the guy doesn't know what to make of it and they have a chuckle over it, ideally, or not, less ideally, right? You know, things like that. They're fun uh, and lighthearted, but also real and, and make sex less scary. And so I think, you know, other filmmakers that I look at are doing that uh, in ways that might not be, you know, exclusively about sex, but are more generally about the body and about women's bodies, particularly, right? They, you know, uh, in the work of Katrine Brayat and Linda Dunham, especially, you know, we're 
getting to see bodies that look like real bodies. We're getting to see bodies do real things that female bodies do, but that Hollywoodized cinema and porn have again and again told us women's bodies don't do or shouldn't do. And I'm talking about menstruating. I'm talking about, you know, growing hair, you know, all of these things, right? These authentic naturalistic portrayals of sex and of bodies. And I'll single out just one other film that I think does something really important in response to your question, which is Catherine Brayat's film, Fat Girl, which is also known as Amasa, and is a film in her canon that I stand by. And that's not true of every film in her canon and not of some of what she's said in the press, especially of late around Me Too and uh, you know actions uh, that Harvey Weinstein uh, was involved in. Um, but in terms of her film, Fat Girl, I find that the film is a it's still very unique film and one that I like to teach, especially to my college age students for showing us that rape, that sexual assault doesn't always look the way it has been depicted on screen ad nauseum, especially in Hollywoodized performances, um, which is as, you know, a very physical act, an act that, you know, involves physical violence by a stranger uh, most of the time, you know, unexpected, uninvited, you know, that that is certainly one way in which sexual assault happens. Uh, but there's another way that it happens. There's, in fact, a whole spectrum of ways that it happens. Um, and she shows that. She shows the kind of sexual assault that doesn't look like sexual assault, at least not that you know we're used to seeing, right? Where it does look more like a seduction. It might even be, you know, in some ways appealing to the women involved or even to us, the viewers. And that, in fact, makes it even more uh, insidious, right? Even more dangerous. So uh, her work, I think, is really important in that regard. And, in, you know, for my students and I has produced some really interesting conversations, not just about representing sexual assault, but also about how women deal with it. You know, the kind of or any you know, victim of sexual assault deals with it, the kind of trauma that comes later and how that, too, can take many forms that doesn't always follow a script. Right. That doesn't always look acceptable or respectable, you know, and the wonderful Michaela Cole show that came out, unfortunately, after I finished writing my book, I May Destroy You, is another example of this. So I think that's another really important part of my approach to thinking about sexual provocation is looking at it not just as the sex that's good, but the sex that's bad. And even beyond that, the sex that's, you know, not sex, it's rape, it's assault. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important because actually you get away from that sort of reductiveness. But, uh, because I was discussing this with um, another person that I had interviewed a few weeks ago, Kate Lister, and we were talking about how the Victorian pornography looked majorly different to pornography, say, 60, 60 years down the road. It's just been like totally reduced. There's nothing in the background. But she was talking about this, this Victorian pornography that she'd found with a stuffed dog in the background. Like for some reason, <laughs> the, the scene needed a stuffed dog. And you don't get any of that. And I I'd actually heard that somebody else explore that before. Somebody, I think, on a TED talk I heard once saying that you don't see hands in porn. <laughs> and as soon as, because obviously my own research, I look at a lot of porn. As soon as I, I saw that, I was like looking for the hands. There are no hands, you know. So it's kind of like really important that, that actually provocation can do that, kind of. It can kind of like, it can uh, sort of like, sort of act as a counter to that reductivity, that kind of like, you know, rape looks this way, sex looks this way. It's, yeah, it's really important. So I really like Absolutely. what you said about, um, about, male full frontals yeah so <laughs> can you tell us about a bit about the history of the male full front 
prefrontal and its newfound visibility. Absolutely. And I, I listened to that podcast, the, the interview that you did with uh, Lister's, uh, about Lister's book, and I thought it was terrific. Um, I, I was actually just thinking, well, what else have we not been accustomed to seeing outside of porn? And that's the subject of a whole chapter of the book, right? The full frontal nudity, male nudity book, or chapter rather. Um, and that's absolutely true that, you know, for so long, the one thing that has really kind of determined whether or not it's considered porn is whether there's full frontal male nudity. Um, and, you know, the one realm where the penis has been visible has been in porn. And the few, you know, instances where it's visible in more mainstream media, it's always as uh, either in a kind of porn-like scenario, if uh, it's, you know, going to be included, it has to be, you know, pornographically endowed, right, in whatever way that means, you know, it has to be really big, or it has to be erect, or it has to be, you know, the possession of some sort of, you know, domineering figure, you know, there are very much uh, increasingly in instances of this in, in some realms of television, um, uh, of late, right? The kind of, you know, Game of Thrones style sensationalized um, male nudity. There's also the instances of it's being a joke, right? The kind of Judd Apatow form of humor where there's some sort of, you know, humiliating reveal of uh, the penis that, you know, serves to kind of ward off some sort of, you know, encroaching homophobia or homosexual anxiety, or it's, you know, to make a joke about the size or just the kind of, you know, humiliating person that's being revealed. And otherwise it's just not seen. So it's at these two extremes, um, which basically you know, serve to make it into a joke or into this phallically endowed symbol of you know, heteromasculinity. And so what I'm interested in in the chapter that focuses on this is in all of these new instances that are suddenly coming to light in which we see penises, but in some sort of you know, in-between more naturalistic realm, right? So that takes a few different forms. Um, a lot of the times it's been prosthetic, right? So that's interesting in and of itself, you know, that uh, what does that have to do with uh, the question of stardom, right? You know, male actors being willing or unwilling uh, to act uh, fully nude. Um, of course, with prosthetics, you can, you know, do all sorts of interesting things with, you know, regard to effects. Um, and sometimes that can have, I think, really powerful uh, thematic um, uh, meaning. Um, I'm thinking of a film, or I'm sorry, a series like American Gods, in which there was a really interesting use of both a prosthetic and also a digitally enhanced penis um, that took on these kind of mystical qualities within a scene of sex between men, but an interracial sex scene at that. Um, so I'm not discounting the use of uh, prosthetics entirely, but I personally have found the more interesting um, realm of uh, representations of the penis to be those that are entirely naturalistic and like almost, you know, hyper naturalistic in the sense of a film like uh, Stranger by the Lake, which I spent some time talking about, a French film by um, Hélène Giraudy who uh, put so many penises on display in that film, right? They're, they're literally ubiquitous. You know, almost every person in the film is naked for most of the movie. Um, and it's about, you know, a community of gay men. So it not only makes penises 
an everyday object, like kind of literally the backdrop, the scenery, right? To such a degree that you just kind of stop noticing after a while. So it just normalizes uh, the penis um, as any other body part. Uh, but it's also about gay men. And, you know, gay men have, you know, uh, in our culture been hyper conflated with sexuality, right? With what they do in the bedroom at the same time as they've been, you know, paradoxically denied representation of their sex life on screen and all but these very euphemistic ways. And so I think that it's a really important um, uh, line that Jurady has, uh, you know, crossed, um, that he is putting gay sex very proudly and prominently on screen, um, but in a way that's desensationalized, right? And I think that that film is really fascinating for how kind of unsensationalized it was when it uh, came out. Um, it was awarded, it was acclaimed, it was viewed uh, far more than, you know, a, an art film uh, typically finds its way to be. But, you know, it interestingly didn't really, uh, despite it's quite, I think, imaginative and, and provocative uh, uh, themes, uh, it really did find favor with a broad uh, range of audience members. So I think there's, you know, a demand for more naturalistic displays of the body and of sex, especially of queer couples or queer people. And that's part of why I uh, wanted to focus on representations of the penis for an entire chapter. <laughs> I think my longest chapter even. <laughs> I like I like it though because it sort of defetishizes, doesn't it? Like there's so many sort of like um, sort of uh, uh, sort of correspondences between the study of sex work, say, and and for example, the discussions around gay sex. So it's almost like it's discussed, but the actual physicality of it is never mentioned. It's just discussed in a kind of, you know, abstract fashion. And to sort of like bring the penis back into into the into the line of vision when it's not actually just there for sexual sort of like reasons, it's really important. And I really, yes. I, you know, I really, you know, I really got that from what you were you were explaining. What you know, it made sense to me what this provocation could actually achieve. So there was, I wanted to ask you about this because um, I didn't know what this term meant, which is, tells tells you what a kind of luddite I am. Yeah. So can you explain <laughs> the term art porn to us and how this is discussed in the book? Well, that's actually a term I think that uh, I had, no, I think that that was a term that I had invented. I'm trying to remember now because I know that other people who have written, I, I, I don't want to claim that I was the first to use it, um, but there have been some other people who have written on the conflation of uh, art cinema with porn um, that became especially pronounced around the turn of the 21st century because there was this trend for real sex scenes, as they've been called, right? You know, these uh, scenes within, you know, some of the works that I even look at uh, by Catherine Brayad and others, um, Gaspar Noé is another who's uh, very much um, associated with this trend in art cinema. And, you know, people who have written on both art cinema and on pornography have looked at that conflation of uh, the explicit display of sex that is sometimes unsimulated or at least reported to be unsimulated as in porn, um, but that, you know, is still encased within an art film milieu, right? You know, the production context of an art film, but also the exhibition context of an art film, as opposed to the porn industry, which is, you know, a peripheral industry that 
has its own modes of production and circulation and such that you know is really just right over the hill from Hollywood, uh, but you know is almost a world apart in so many ways. And so again, because this line between art and porn is really very fabricated, um, I was interested at looking at where it breaks down, right? Where it becomes increasingly hard to enforce that, uh, that strict binary between what is and isn't porn. And so I'm looking at films that uh, do cross that line or at least blur that line by doing things like having reported unsimulated sex between an actor who is, you know, uh, someone who is, you know, acting within an art film milieu and a hardcore performer like Rocco Sofredi, who Katrine Breyat has uh, cast as the male lead in two of her films. And that kind of crossover casting is incredibly rare. Um, it has happened very little in the entire history of uh, screen representation. And so I'm interested in, in these provocateurs who are, you know, resisting uh, letting their films be circumscribed by these rules of what film can be, right, of what screening sex is allowed to do. And sometimes there's not much that comes out of that of interest. But in the films that I've selected, I find that there really is some interesting work being done at that crossroads of art and porn. And so the two filmmakers that I look at that do that most prominently uh, and that I wanted to promote, I wanted to spotlight are, again, Katrin Brayat, who, you know, is, again, along with Blue is the Warmest Color, the person who would come up again and again when I said I was writing a book about sexual provocation, you know, from maybe a slightly different circle of my acquaintanceship, because she's not as well known, especially here in the US, um, as some of these other figures that I write about. But her work is certainly uh, has always been uh, provocative. And uh, for that reason, more than any other, the reason of her really crossing the boundaries of what is considered uh, non-pornographic and, you know, her films have been treated with a lot of censorship as a result. Um, I also look at Lena Dunham in this regard, and, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think immediately of her film work, her screen work, I should say, as pornographic, but I think in important ways it is because she is, again, interested in showing us the realities of sex. And I know that porn doesn't usually get talked about in the same sentence as somebody saying the realities of sex, but I think the best porn does have that ability, right? And that a lot of porn that's being made by women, by queer people, you know, is actually showing us the realities of sex in some pretty pronounced ways. And I think Lena Dunham's work has also at its best done that. Um, and again, I'm thinking about, you know, the ways that she shows sex as being awkward as being all about power dynamics, um, as being sometimes uh, involving sexually degradating fantasies that women have and how that differs from actually wanting to be hurt or degraded in real life. So again, all of these kinds of gray areas of consent that these two filmmakers lean into rather than you know backing off from and the kinds of uh, questions that they're forcing us to have about their representations of 
sex, the sex acts and the sex uh, scenes on display in their work that have such uh, active responses online and in you know various film festival circles and such. And I wanted to um, take up those conversations on the page. Um, so I, I sort of like wanted to sort of like I noticed a, a phrase that was kind of cropping up in your work a couple of times, and I you know it really resonated with me, and it's the phrase "bad quiz," uh, which is an interesting phrase, and I wanted you to explore it in in the context of your work. What you mean by that? Well, that one I can attest to. That's that's my uh, coinage. <laughs> um, uh, although I think I was maybe led there by the uh, influence of Roxanne Gay's terming bad feminists, right? Um, but I am looking at bad queers, um, notably the two provocateurs that I focus on in my final chapter, Lisa Toledenko and Desiree Akhavan. Um, and I call them bad queers for a number of reasons. You know, first of all, they aren't filmmakers or even people who neatly fit into any of the boxes of what they're supposed to be or expected to be as LGBTQ identified women filmmakers, right? So they're what I call in-betweeners. Um, Desiree Akhavan is an in-betweener in the sense not only that she's bisexual, she's bi-identified. And you know, I know this from having written my first book about bisexuality on screen. And from being bi-identified myself, that bisexuality is the, you know, the bad stepchild of the LGBTQ umbrella. And it's always perceived as not fitting in, as not being good for the brand, you know. <laughs> and uh, so Akavan is first and foremost um, a bad queer for insisting on being bisexual, insisting on her characters saying that they're bisexual. She even named her show the bisexual. And so, you know, she's definitely a bi-queer in that way. I'm sorry, a bad queer and a bi queer in that way. Uh, as is Cholodinko, even though Cholodinko is a lesbian identified woman and has been, you know, since uh, even before she became um, a filmmaker, uh, she is always giving us these characters who are incredibly fluid and, you know, not quick to nail themselves down to any one identity, um, resisting being, you know, perceived as fixed um, by their desires or their actions even into one kind of prescribed identity. And I think both of these filmmakers are too. They resist following the script, right? The kind of glad approved script of what is uh, good for LGBTQ media content, you know, whether it's the coming out story or positive role models or you know, being palatable for mainstream crossover audiences or being too palatable, right? You know, in the case of Cholodinko's film, The Kids Are All Right, you know, she was accused of kind of selling out her uh, queerness, um, which had been very much provocatively on display in her first film, which, you know, provocatively likens lesbianism to heroin addiction. And then she seemingly overcorrects to the other uh, extreme in making a film that's all about you know, a very homonormative, as it was called, um, lesbian family, a kind of lesbian nuclear family. And so, you know, both women have really resisted uh, their work being found pleasing to either constituency, right, the street or the LGBTQ uh, audiences that, you know, uh, seek to maybe police uh, or at least contain, right, what, um, 
so-called good queer work should be. And the one other thing that makes them bad queers, I think, is that because they're always inviting us to think about more than just queerness in their work insofar as they are intersectionally informed. Um, they are, uh, in Tolodinko's case, uh, a Jewish American, in Akhavan's case, Iranian American, relocated to the UK, and have increasingly brought that into their work in, I think, interesting ways, uh, you know, kind of forcing us to look at how sexuality is contingent on what family we were born into, what class we were born into, um, you know, who we meet at a point in our life, you know, what our material needs are and our emotional needs alongside our sexual desires. So just messing up sex, right? They're bad queers because they get in there and mess up, right? What we would like to be neat and tidy and containable within a box. And they also do it with a lot of humor. And that's the final thing that I'll say that makes them bad queers, right? They are irreverent as fuck, right? <laughs> Sorry, but they, you know, are very much about being on PC. Um, they push back at uh, whatever's considered acceptable um, at any point in time. And I think that they're interesting for doing that and provocative for doing that. Yeah, that's, you know, and again, I, I keep coming back to the same thing is prov uh, provoca pro provocation <laughs> is, a, is a, an antidote to reductionism because as you, were, as you were talking, I was remembering a friend of mine who says, look, I'm just a slut for a pretty face, what you've got going on beneath your waistline. I don't care, you know, it's, and it's yes. that, isn't it? It's that kind of like, let's not, let's not, let's not box ourselves, you know, or even if we're in a box for a while, let, we don't have to stay there. We can like float on down the river as we, we feel so inclined. We can go in and out of our niches, which kind of brings me along to the next thing that really resonated with me and what I wanted to ask you about. We should talk about um, the, uh, the, the web and its effect on, I think you call it a nicheification of media audiences. Can we explore that yes. a little bit? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the reason why there's been so much exciting work being done in the realms of diverse representations of sexuality and other identity configurations is because of this nicheification. And that is by no means my coinage. Um, you know, that is a result of several decades of the mediascape evolving to have, you know, just infinite seemingly numbers of channels. And now with the internet, right, other ways of accessing material and putting your material out there. And so instead of trying to broadcast, right, you know, we've increasingly moved into a uh, an industry that tries to narrow cast, right, that tries to signal and target one very narrowly conceived audience, but to make them very loyal, right, uh, to the product that they're uh, delivering. And so, you know, the LGBTQ audience is one of the most desirable audiences in that regard, because they've been perceived as a quality audience, right? They're, you know, high earning. Um, they're going to just subscribe to the premium cable channel or to the streaming service. Um, and so there's obviously some really, you know, questionable, even troubling uh, issues of access and of you know, privilege and uh, of commodifying uh, that go along with that. But the upside, uh, at least for a while, um, was I thought, you know, some really fascinating work um, being made by, again, queer women of color or queer women uh, that uh, was made for, you know, very little money 
by people who had no uh, status within the industry, right? You know, who are making this as kind of calling cards to be noticed as launching pads into a career and uh, were putting their work out there to be found as web series, right? By uh, people looking for it, something that reflected them back to them. And so, you know, again, going back to Akavan's work, her earliest, uh, you know, uh, work that got her notice was made with her then partner, Ingrid Youngerman, and was called The Slope. And it's still online for free to watch on Vimeo. Um, and that's the kind of work that I was getting very excited about when I first started working, or at least thinking about this project and wanting to highlight, uh, because again, these are you know nicheified uh, spaces of the web or of you know, television streaming that I've found and, and you know, uh, others have, but that you don't think are probably gonna get discovered by the masses. Now, social media has been helpful. Things like you know, crowdsource funding have been helpful uh, for enabling that kind of work to get made and talked about. But I think what's interestingly happening more recently is that what 10 years ago would have been made as a web series is now being made for Netflix. Right. So just as an example, you know, I just watched a show called Bondage, which is a two season show. Maybe it'll get renewed about the BDSM community. And, you know, it would have been something that its creators made and put up online themselves back in the day. But now it's being shown on Netflix. Now, that's great in some respects. Right. It has a far larger platform, much farther uh, reaching, you know, prominence. But of course, now Netflix owns it, right? Or Netflix at least controls access to it. And it could be canceled at any moment, right? Or be, be, be devalued in its algorithm. Uh, and so, you know, that worries me, that, that concern for um, the, you know, corporate control of this work that I think is bringing exciting content dealing with formerly, you know, very niche subcultures and topics uh, to more viewers in a way that can, you know, not just get its filmmakers noticed, but can start conversations and enable acceptance and, and you know, even uh, 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 protections for various uh, sexual subcultures and practices, you know, that are consensual uh, that are legal and, you know, that are uh, going on out there, whether or not we are participating or approving. Yeah. And so, you know, deserve to be seen and, and I think uh, brought into the, the discussion. But that's quite an interesting discussion to have as well about the role that capitalism plays in that and how it like increasingly becomes more predatory in areas that it was never able to to to, to access before. I, I know with my own work around webcaming, um, you know, sort of like the times of day when sort of like you know corporations can profit from sort of like se sexual encounters is you know, and in ways that it's never been able to to profit profit before is really interesting, but. One really good thing I always like always gives me real kind of like hope in my heart is that is that the human imagination is always just that much ahead of like sort of capitalism. So where capitalism is now is not where the, the really interesting stuff is because I really liked what you said about the nissification because I always think of that as like allowing you to find your tribe, 
you know, because when I've spoken to webcam performers about um, about their their audiences and how they work, they they the the women that I spoke to said that rather than performing, they just be who they are. They would be what their particular like sort of like fetish, what their particular se sexual proclivity is, and so then then people come and find them rather than them having to broadcast something that's going to be generic for everyone. They can be themselves, and the people that find that find that you know find them and they found that really attractive so i really kind of like that kind of crossover of of provocation but also provocation is like opens up a lot um opens up and allows people to connect in ways that they weren't able to connect before and it doesn't have to be mediated by corporations so i you know i really that really resonated with me um yes so what do you consider still remains pro pro provocative in and i really like this um an era which you describe as uh, sort of manifesting pornification and sexual uh, sexual puritanism at the same time. Right. Well, I mean, to what you were just saying, I think that that's so important. Um, not just in the point about how we're always staying a few steps ahead, right? Both of the you know corporate overlords commodifying and containing what's provocative. But just in continuing to push the envelope on what's provocative, right? So that's a great example of webcamming and just all of the various um, modes of sex work, of sexual labor, and how you know it's still considered such a taboo, um, especially when it's shown in ways that aren't, again, following the script, right? Where it's either some victimized woman on the street, uh, or it's like this kind of high call girl, you know, high class call girl uh romanticized version of it anything in between where it's just a job right where it's just another job but one that you know the law doesn't regard as worthy of protection um that's what's really provocative that's what's dangerous and so i think that there are some really fascinating narratives that have begun to get circulated about that and uh i didn't have the space to include them in the book but they're actually part of my next project um and what i'm calling elective sex work narratives Another area for this is polyamory, right? So this is, you know, non-consensual monogamy, you know, practices within marriages or within other sanctioned couplings or unsanctioned but still committed couplings or whatever type of relations that, uh, you know, go beyond monogamy, right? That decide to uh, open up the relationship in whatever ways are agreed upon and consensual, but that don't fit any kind of prescribed notions of what coupling should be. And so I've, you know, most recently written about some shows that are invested in thinking through that. Um, another area of still taboo content has to do with childhood sexuality and uh, adolescent sexuality. And, you know, certainly that gets at the, I think, real, you know, hypocrisy that you just quoted my referencing of in terms of, you know, how we are very uh, pornified as a culture, but also very uh, puritanical as a culture. And I think one case that erupted after I'd again finished the book and handed it off to the press, but is I think, you know, a perfect example of what I've talked about throughout the book is the case of cuties, which, you know, blew up uh, in the, you know, popular discourse, uh, I guess it was early 2021, or I'm sorry, early 2020, uh, when Netflix took this you know, I think really fascinating French uh, art film uh, about, you know, a young immigrant girl's uh, sexual awakening 
um, and entryway into being, you know, sexually objectified, which is what happens to young girls in our culture. And it turned it into a sensationalistic, misrepresented PR blitz um, that got, you know, conservatives crying, cancel and censor, and got people like Tessa Thompson pushing back saying, just watch the film because it's actually a lot more interesting and a lot more um, uh, protective of young girls than that Netflix campaign would have you think. And so again, it did the work that I'm hoping to do with this book, which is to get people talking about what we so oftentimes just, you know, uh, watch or um, blanket uh, in our PR campaigns and don't fully reckon with, which is how we very much create value for women and girls around their sexual worth, their perceived sexual worth, even as we also tell them that anything sexual and tell ourselves, right, that anything sexual involving children is verboten, uh, is criminal, right? And that those are, you know, mutually exclusive ways of thinking and, and treating uh, women and needing to reckon with that. So these are just a few examples of, you know, what's still taboo that we're going to have to deal with. And I guess maybe I'll be starting to deal with in my next project. Do you want to describe, do you want to talk to us about your next project? It seems an incredibly fortunate opportunity to, to discuss me. Yeah, well, I can say a little bit about it. I mean, it's certainly in its infancy still, but I have tentatively named it Bad Feminists, and I am giving total props again to Roxanne Gay for leading me there. But I'm interested in thinking about these other cases that I didn't quite have time uh, or space to bring into this project in which women are acting in ways that are, uh, you know, going off script or are resisting being prescribed uh, as to how good feminists should act. Um, so again, I have a whole chapter on elective sex work, you know, women in representation. Again, I'm not talking about real life. I don't have the training to deal with real life sex work. Um, I'm leaving that to <laughs> the people trained as you are. Um, but I am interested in looking at uh, work primarily by women uh, that considers sex work as another job, right? As another job that women do that has all of the, you know, pluses and minuses of any job, right? You know, a lot of mundane hours spent laboring, um, but that because it's not recognized in our culture as legitimate work, has a lot of dangers and disadvantages as well. And so, you know, I'm looking at uh, a show like The Girlfriend Experience, which I think uh, has done some interesting uh, work in this regard, um, a number of feature films, uh, and also uh, some web series by queer women, non-binary women, trans women that deal with, uh, in some cases, their own um, sex work, but also just more fictionalized accounts of women sex workers and what that experience is like. Um, I uh, have been looking at um, the first time films by what I call emergent provocateurs, so returning to the topic of this book, and considering how women who are making their first films use that film as a so-called calling card, right, that's what they're known as 
uh, in the industry to get noticed, um, but that are very singularly um, focused on women's coming of age and representing that coming of age in far less Lolita-like, right, kind of romanticized versions that are very male gazy, right? Um, and instead, you know, turning the lens uh, around and letting it be that uh, female gaze oriented look at adolescence and uh, sexual awakening for girls in our, you know, again, pornified and puritanical simultaneously culture and how that entry into the adult sexual realm can be very messy and very scary, but also exciting and thrilling and, you know, stories worth telling, but in a way that is quite different than has often been told in that, again, you know, highly Lolita-like um, attempt to sexualize young girls uh, in a way that suits um, a male perspective uh, and uh, kind of, you know, uh, palatable, but also deeply troubling depiction of young female sexuality that I want to move past. Yeah, I mean, and actually, as, as we're talking about this, it occurs to me that actually we always look at like female sexuality through the lens of history. We very, very seldom get real time female sort of sexuality. We don't have a kind of like, you know, you know, like underage filmmakers who, who would probably like address this in a totally different way if you're not looking back over it, say, 15 years after the event, you know, and what that would mean, whether it would actually be like an entry or whether it be like a slow slither. Yeah, I think it would be quite interesting to, to do that. I was, uh, which kind of gets me on to this next point. Um, so I was interested in the in the phrase um, vulnerable viewing. Yeah, mm -hmm. what do you mean about by that? What 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 did you mean by that in the context of your book and provo prov prov provocation in filmmaking? Well, I mean that's the term that I use towards the end. I think in the epilogue, in fact, in which I talk about you know what's still taboo and uh how we are to treat the type of sexually provocative material that is you know ever more proliferating uh in our media sphere in ways that will be productive right and i got to that conceit of vulnerable viewing as you know a way of kind of allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, right? I think that the, the filmmakers that I've wanted to highlight, the media creators whose work I've brought uh, into the book for discussion are people that I do think have made themselves vulnerable. Um, not entirely, right? You know, I'm thinking back to at the very beginning, blue is the warmest color. You know, those actors, performers who star in the film and who did get, thankfully, a lot of the credit for making the film, they certainly made themselves vulnerable. I don't think the primary filmmaker, the person who has the director credit on the film, did a good job of that, you know, I think he, you know, was acting invulnerable um, and, you know, dictatorial and, and that's deeply unfortunate and, and troubling. Um, and we need to address that. But I think the best work is that in which the creator alongside the performers are going to enter into a mutually, you know, agreed upon and consensual pact of 
uh, protected vulnerability, right? And so I think that's what's been really exciting to hear is happening now on at least some sets, right? Where uh, I'm thinking of um, films like Duck Butter or Ammonite. Uh, or Portrait of a Girl on Fire, right? These are again, films that I didn't have time to talk about because they came out too late, but that are films on the set of which, like as with Desiree Akhavan's work, measures were taken to instill a feeling of trust and co-authorship and consent that allowed for, I think, what is hands down the most exciting work, you know, that I've been seeing lately in the, in the last year, um, that out of those, you know, as, as much as people might, warn you otherwise out of those controlled environments uh, in which you know what's going to happen, in which it's choreographed, actually the most authentic and interesting work is being made. You don't have to, you know, just throw people into uh, an unprotected environment for the magic to happen, right? Um, that's where people clam up because they don't feel vulnerable or they feel too vulnerable. I'm sorry, they don't feel safe. Um, and that's a practice I've preached in my classroom, right? Where, you know, I think honestly the best conversations come out of controlled environments where we do feel like we've consented to be there, where we feel like we're all, you know, uh, autonomous individuals, adults, right? Who have, uh, you know, allowed ourselves to be vulnerable, but because we feel safe and where we've all, question what it is we're doing there and why and where I have really questioned because I'm the one facilitating I'm the one you know ostensibly you know in control and in charge of the uh the conversation and the content um you know most of all and so I've been forced to reassess why I'm making the choices I am to show what I'm showing to uh you know have the conversations I'm asking students to have with me and in the same way I'm asking at that epilogue point in the book for us all to enter into an agreement that we're going to make ourselves vulnerable, but within controlled environments, right? Environments where we insist upon consent and obviously all of the legal protections that should come along with that. And as such, to get to have the conversations that are most open and expansive and real uh, and thus productive and beneficial. Which kind of like so so we're almost finished, but I I sort of like the, the sort of the end of the book, and you say it was really hard to finish this book because you know provocations are kind of going on all the time. So what at the moment is really sort of like piquing your interest? What provocations are going on that's sort of you know like heightened your antenna? Well, I think it's been interesting to see how the last year, in terms of you know a pandemic ordered shut down of so many sets and um, also so many, you know, film going experiences has affected all of what I'm talking about because, you know, a lot of what I was advocating for in the book was a return to this idea of a public cinephilia, you know, film going as an adult, uh, you know, we could even call it a cultural sex practice, right? A kind of idea of uh, film going as something that we do communally um, where we go to see uh, and, and discuss afterwards, you know, questions around sex and sexuality. Um, and we haven't had the chance to do that in an embodied physical atmosphere over the last year. We haven't had much of an opportunity to do it since, you know, the heyday of both 
film going as an adult uh, practice uh, in the 70s and art house uh, culture, you know, being on the wane ever since then. Um, but now we're not able to do it for, you know, health reasons. We are, though, able to do it in the virtual realm. And I think there's been some interesting stuff going on there. So one of the biggest provocations of the last year that I didn't, again, get to write about, but I did publish a short blog post on that your readers or, I guess, listeners can um, check out on Indiana University Press's site is the WAP, <laughs> the WAP, right, um, uh, song hit single um, that blew up uh, this past summer. And like a lot of the screen texts I talk about, initiated a conversation around women's sexual pleasure and women's bodies. And I think that's exciting and, you know, is a conversation that needed to happen a long time ago, but I'm glad it's happening now. Um, uh, thanks to Cardi B and, and Megan Thee Stallion and other kinds of work like that uh, that's also blown up in the last year. So I had mentioned the Netflix uh, film Cuties. Um, there's also been, I think, a real plethora of fascinating portrayals of uh, lesbian or queer women's sexuality. So I'm thinking of my favorite film of 2019, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, one of the last films that a lot of people got to see in a theater before they shut down. Uh, Ammonite is another, Duck Butter is another. And again, those are all women's made films or at least co-authored films by queer women. So bringing their authentic experience and representation to the screen whether it's the small screen or the big screen. And, you know, there being a lot of conversations around those films online as well. So there's a lot going on. COVID has not shut down sexual provocation and it may well be even more important a way of making work uh, get seen and heard about given that so many media creators are going to be confined by what's inevitably going to be a constrained marketplace um, going forward. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. And I, I hope, uh, you know, my uh, argument that sexual provocation is all the more important, uh, won't be dampened by, you know, whatever real, uh, and, and I hope uh, not too long lasting drawbacks have been uh, brought about by the last year's pandemic and, and the, you know, cuts to film exhibition and to media creation have happened as a result. So we'll end on a high. So what do you hope to achieve with this book? Well, I hope to bring to more awareness the work of media creators and namely women uh, that have been making work that I think is exciting, taboo, breaking, boundary crossing uh, and so very much deserves uh, our attention. Um, I hope that I have pushed a little further uh, the boundaries around what's acceptable to screen and talk about um, and have troubled the boundaries between sexual uh categories whether it's what constitutes art versus porn uh but also around categories of sexuality so again going back to my first book's 
focus on those in-between categories of bisexuality and other sexuality categories, right, that force us beyond binaries of categorization around sex and sexuality. Um, and, you know, I hope that I have helped amplify and expand what I call the millennial water cooler uh, effect that filmmaking and other types of screen media can have, wherein even though there's no more, probably, you know, very few physical water coolers left, right, not just the actual water cooler that used to exist or maybe still does exist in, you know, the corporate workplace, but the more figurative, figurative sense of individual texts that get talked about, right, water cooler viewing, you know, with that nicheification, with that proliferation of channels and texts and the super saturated marketplace, it's increasingly rare that a lot of people will assemble around one text to talk about it excitedly as it's being, you know, experienced, rolled out in the moment and how that conversation around these singular texts can produce so much you know, information, education, uh, and, um, you know, uh, adoration of the powers that screen media instill in us and, and you know, uh, draw out in us. And that's increasingly rare, given where the mediascape is currently. And so if I, you know, can help to amplify and enable those texts to get made and talked about and uh, watched and remembered, then I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, and I mean, you've done an amazing job today as well. Um, my name is Rachel Stewart. This is Maria Sanfilippo. Am I pronouncing that right? Absolutely correct. Yeah. Okay. Talking about her book, Provocateurs and Prov Provocations, Screening Sex in the 21st Century Media. Thank you so, so much. That's been amazing. I've learned so much and I'm sure, I'm sure our audience will as well.